0: Happy New Year, and welcome to the She Reads Truth Podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there.
1: I'm your host, Rachel Myers. And I'm your other host, Amanda Bible-Williams, and this is our first episode of the new year and our new series called Faith and Practice, a biblical study of spiritual disciplines. And our guest today is just the perfect person to start us off in this conversation, Today, we're joined by John Mark Comer. John Mark is a pastor at Bridgetown Church in the urban core of Portland. Um, he and his wife, Tammy, have three kiddos, and John Mark has just done some really foundational work about... What it means to live in the way of Jesus His latest book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry I've read it cover to cover It's fantastic Guys, you are going to be so encouraged By this conversation And challenged And it's a long one But we encourage you to just hang in there till the end And grab a notebook Because John Mark offers so many Really great insights To get us going on our study of spiritual disciplines So let's go
0: Hey y'all, 2021. Congratulations. Did we make yeah. it? I mean, in the future. But let's say we made it.
1: <laughs> future Us will have
2: made it.
0: Future Us, Lord willing. And if the Lord tarries. And you know what? If he doesn't tarry, that's fine. Take me home, Lord. Come that sounds
2: on. more okay than ever before.
0: Uh-huh. But uh-huh. won't won't you ask, like, could you come a few months earlier? <laughs> I just think, I mean, how untethered have we become in a lot of ways to all the things. That shine yeah and also That's maybe true. a little
1: more tethered yeah maybe so maybe, maybe a that. Little that too i could not help but um recognize the irony john mark as we <laughs> were you know this has been on the schedule this morning was not a surprise that we were going to have a conversation with you which we've been looking forward to but that we were truly just kind of sliding into home this morning to make it in time. And so just scrambling to get to a conversation with a gentleman whose book is
2: entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry.
1: <laughs> like, also, not this, lost is, on this me. is why we need you.
2: <laughs> oh, judgment. Oh, yeah. As if I have it down here, just a little word to the wise never, ever write a book on hurry. Because then every single time you're ever in a hurry, which is, I don't care what book you write, you are human (laughs) and you have children and family and job and life. And deadlines. The guilt and the shame. I literally think to myself, I literally wrote the book against this. And here Uh I am. And here we are. I feel your pain.
1: I feel like that's the story of the new year, right? Like good intentions and plans and then life just like bowls you over and you're like, ah, I don't know. Like I spiritual disciplines. Awesome. Also, can I just survive the next two hours? We, we do
2: New Year's D resolutions. So we, Ooh, talk to
1: us about this.
2: January, we rather than, you know, what's all the things we want? New Year's resolutions are a joke and they're interesting. They're based on the Western evangelical formula for spiritual formation that doesn't work, which is information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. And that just does not work.
1: Give us a new one. So let's everybody write that down and then put a big X through
2: it. What can we cut out? That's like our January question. Like what can we cut out and what are the practices or habits or spiritual disciplines or whatever you want to call them that are core? Like what are the first rocks in the bucket that these are non-negotiable? And then what else can we cut out? That's our January conversation which is normally by March. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but and then still, you know what, make it the March conversation. That's okay. It doesn't have to just be pinned in January.
1: Yeah. And I think that's it. I mean, I think so many of us we come to January 1st and you know, personality types are interesting and I'm planning is not my forte. I love a good plan, but I just like to follow it and give a bunch of grace when I don't, but then just try again. It's just like begin again. That is like every day. But yeah, I think we all just come to this time of the year and think. 2020,
2: you know, has stripped us of so much of that in a good way.
1: I think so too. Yeah. It's helped us laugh at ourselves.
2: It is unhealthy. I'm an obsessive compulsive planner. And this year has just stripped that out of my spirit, you know, if not all the way, at least at a significant level, you know, which is really important. Um, Not because planning is bad, but planning for personality types like mine can just become another form of control, another form of grasping, and another way to try to control my own life rather than entrust it to God, you know? So as brutal as 2020 has been, I'm really grateful for some of the work it's done in my soul.
0: Amen. Same. Yeah. I was talking with uh, my pastor this weekend and we were talking about Romans five and how like the first thing that suffering produces is perseverance. And as the church, like we need to learn some perseverance. And I'm grateful for we can say that we're grateful for that, that suffering came and, and helped hopefully produce in us some perseverance.
2: Because you can't learn I was listening to a great sermon by uh, you guys Follow Charlie Dates et all out of Chicago.
1: No, but I'm writing that down.
2: Favorite preachers right now. Dude can teach the Bible. All right. He gave this great teaching and he was talking about how you don't learn perseverance from a book or a podcast, you know, you learn perseverance by persevering.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: The way you get it into your body is you persevere, you know, that's how you cultivate perseverance.
0: Can't take notes on perseverance. Yeah.
2: Well, you can. It's great. I mean, if I was going to go through a year of suffering, I'd love to have a little podcast series. I'd love to read a book <laughs> on that. That's really helpful. It's not. Mm-hmm. It just won't make me somebody with the capacity for perseverance. It will. Give that's right. Tools, wisdom, inspiration, direction. It might keep me from quitting, but it like what will keep me in perseverance is just getting up in the morning and following Jesus
1: and doing it. Yeah, and I mean that's this,
0: and I like that you specifically said. And following Jesus, not just getting up in the morning. Like, that's great, but you didn't stop there. You said getting up in the morning and
1: following Jesus.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: And this reading plan is, you know, even just this morning, as I was thinking about this conversation, it's faith and practice. And even the term spiritual disciplines, another word that we use are spiritual practices. And even that word, I think we forget that um a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice even just the nature of the word is exactly that. It's yes, we can read and we can have a conversation and we can listen um and learn from the good work of others, but to do the work is to actually practice and it's not, you know, we don't have it down. When I think of the word practice, I often think of when I took piano lessons when I was a kid and I didn't practice. And if I sat down in my lesson and didn't practice, I didn't have to tell her that I didn't practice. She knew (laughs) because it was evident. And you can't just, well, very few people can just sit down, Bernie Herms excluded, you know, people like (laughs) that. But you can't just sit down on the piano and play, most of us, because you have to learn, you have to practice. And so I don't under stand why we as Christians believe that we can be that, that we can be little Christs and followers of Jesus without practicing and one foot in front of the other. And, you know, it's one of the things we say about scripture, like, well, if you say you believe the Bible, but you don't know what the Bible says or read it, then how does that work exactly?
2: (laughs) And knowing the Bible is still not the same thing as having the mind of Christ. That's a great point. Knowing what it
0: says is the starting place.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's how you get access to the mind of Christ, you know, but knowing what it says is different than it has literally rewired your neural pathways to where, you know, your neurons are hardwired to think like Jesus. Yeah. Through a lifetime of reading scripture and and not reading it, but meditation.
1: That's
2: right. Yeah. I love your practice analogy. So I use the exact one you use, the music analogy, all the time. And, you know, spiritual disciplines are to living the way of Jesus or the Sermon on the Mount or whatever, what, you know, piano practice is to playing a concert, you know, yeah, how we practice. But people don't think that way. Paul's metaphor, the primary metaphor in Paul for spiritual disciplines in the New Testament, like Corinthians 9, for example, is athletics Right. And that one works really well, too. Like I think about, you know, there's a lot of runners who have done at least a half marathon, if not a full marathon. And if you think about like, how do you run a marathon? You don't run a marathon based on the information plus inspiration plus willpower. You know what I mean? You don't read a book about a marathon and then listen to a 20-minute podcast where somebody's pumping you up that you can do this and then just go out and try really hard to run a marathon. (laughs) If you did... You know, if you were not in good shape or let's say you were, you know, you're a smoker or whatever, and you're especially not in good shape, then you would maybe make it a mile to four or five if you're really tough. And then you would die. You would collapse on the side of the road, (laughs) like leaking lung fluid and call for the paramedics. And does not matter if I was running next to you and like trying to give you self-help inspiration? Like that would maybe get you an extra mile, but it's not going to get you 26.2. How do you run a marathon? Like it's the most basic thing if you're totally out of shape, you start on day one and you run one mile. And then, you know, if you've ever done this every week, you add one mile onto your long run. So week one, your long run is two miles. Week three, your long run is three miles. Week three, your long run is four. And then you normally break and do four or three again. And then you start again, four, five, six, and then you break and then five, six, seven, and then you break and then six, seven, eight, You know, that's the general principle. And eventually, over a long period of time, through what Paul in the New Testament calls training, you become the kind of person for whom it's hard, but it is well within your capacity as a human being to go out and run 26.2 miles. The problem is almost no Christians apply that basic common sense formula to living the Sermon on the Mount or the writings of the New Testament. Most people just go out and try to run a marathon. So they read Paul say, don't be anxious. And they ignore the dozens of times that he talks about the practice of gratitude, the practice of prayer, the practice of rejoicing, the practice of living in community, the practice of death to self, all of these practices that enable you to become the kind of person who can live with less or little to no anxiety in the world. They just go out and try not to be anxious. That does not work. Richard Foster, when he released Celebration of Discipline in the late 70s, toured America for two years. And at the end, his conclusion was that most American Christians think they change by trying, not by training. Mm. And guilty. And he's talking about evangelical Christians, often reformed Christians, yeah. who might theologically preach against that. It's not about trying. It's not about willpower. It's about what oh, God's done for you, da, da, da. They might have impeccable theology, but when it comes to their actual practice, It's basically trying or willpower, and it just doesn't work very well.
1: That makes so much sense. That, like, if I just try hard enough, I'll be like Jesus. Like, there are so many problems with that statement. (laughs) But yet, that is kind of what it boils down to when you. I'm not trying to be cynical. You know what I mean?
2: People are well meaning people. Like, people would mostly just say, I want to read the Bible and go live it. And that sounds great, but read Romans. Just read Romans just twelve or thirteen and then just go do it that day and see how successful. Get back
1: to us. Sure, it can sound cynical, but also I think there's some freedom in that because just to say, listen, this is not I mean that formula that you keep so the information plus inspiration plus willpower. And by information um, in our
2: context, I mean Bible. Right. 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 I'm like I come from a Bible tradition, Bible teaching tradition. And it was the working theory of change was not articulated, but the one I picked up at an unconscious level was basically read the Bible, get inspired by a sermon, and then go do it.
0: Yeah. Now, if right. they'd
2: not said that, they would have said it's by the power of the Spirit. Da, da da But that would have stayed at the cliche level and never actually moved into here is how you go rely on the Holy Spirit day by day. Here's how you rely yeah. on the Spirit in the morning. Here's how you rely on the Spirit when you're tempted to da 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 da.
0: So talk to us about the converse. Like, talk to us about what instead.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that this morning. Like, how do we... Because here we are at the first of the year with our good intentions Yeah, um, that we all have. Our annual good intentions. Yeah, this is my <laughs> annual list of good intentions. And then life comes in, right? 2020 or 2021, whatever. And we say, well, but then this. But that's always life. And you said something earlier where we were talking about practice Oh, we were talking about the marathoner, that it's still hard, but it's within their capacity. And I think that's I so that. important mm-hmm. because I don't think that you would ever ask a runner, is it easy? It comes more naturally. I don't know. I've never been a runner. But like I would assume it comes more naturally, but if they started to neglect the practice, it wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and then even when you are healthy and practiced. That it is still difficult, but it's doable. So, yeah. How do we get from tell me if this is heretical? I love to start a sentence that (laughs) way.
0: I'm trying to understand even more. Would it be true to say that even Christ, he gave himself to death on a cross, and it was difficult, but he had the capacity to do it because of who he was and how he had lived?
2: Oh, I think of that challenging line in Hebrews about how he learned. Yes. Or you was made perfect through suffering.
1: Yes, we talked about that. We were talking about that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And if you talk about and you were saying the things that like we neglect to pay attention to, like the call to gratitude and all that, there's also a scriptural acknowledgement that to be like Jesus is to be like Jesus in his suffering. Like suffering is mentioned a disconcerting number of times mm-hmm. in scripture that like if you're going to be like Jesus, this is part Of the gig. And I think it's part of the gig either way, because this is the world.
2: That's a great insight. Suffering is, yeah, it's not like you can opt out of suffering as a human being. It's just what you want to suffer for. And suffering is key because without suffering, there's no way for us to become people of love. Because if my biblical theology is right, and life is essentially a school us to become people of love as defined by Jesus agape so that we can co-rule the universe with him in the age to come. That's what the meaning of life is. It's to become people who are in loving relationships and have the capacity for love and wisdom. Then love as defined by Jesus is not tolerance. It's not a feeling. It's not desire. It's not lust. It's not sexuality. It's not even a sense of warm, fuzzy feelings and affection. Although there's pieces of that in it. Love is to put the good of another ahead of your own no matter the cost of yourself through a commitment to compassion. And love, therefore, is a form of self-giving and all self-giving is a form of suffering. Therefore, there is no possible way to become a loving person without suffering
1: we asked a question and then we derailed us.
0: We had talked about the formula, the traditional formula that we yeah. have sort of assembled with confidence um that falls <laughs> apart. Um Good, but we're sticking with it. But and as a community, we typically read a gospel in January. That's sort of our favorite way to start the year. But this year, we thought let's, you know, sometimes we do these more topical what does scripture say type of plans and we wanted to do that this year. What does Scripture say about the way of Jesus? Like, how does it actually teach us to live? What is the anti-that formula? What are spiritual disciplines? What does Jesus do, and what does He say to do? And so we use the word spiritual disciplines. John Mark, I've heard you use the phrase, the way of Jesus. Is that the phrase you use? Talk to us about the way of Jesus, about spiritual disciplines. What are they? What are they not— Talk to us about, you know, when Christ says, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like, what does he mean? How could it possibly be easy and light?
2: Yes. Yeah. hundred ten hundred and percent. Okay. So I would maybe talk about it, depending on how much time you want to spend here, through three layers, like the gospels, the way of Jesus, and then spiritual disciplines or whatever you want to call them. And I would distinguish a little bit between the way of Jesus and spiritual discipline.
0: Great. Yes.
2: Um, if that's helpful at all. So one of the things that's interesting about the Gospels, which I would argue are synonymous at some level for the Gospel, is that the Gospels are written in the genre biography. And a lot of people don't pay attention to that. Why do people read a biography? Well, most of the time, it's because it is a luminary or it's a character that people either want to become like or at times want to askew, you know what I mean? So I read Dallas Willard's biography, you know, maybe two summers ago. And I just, my heart was like more inspired to goodness in the way ever before. And I read, you know, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk's biography, just because I was fascinated by them. And I realized how tragic their lives were and how much Mm -hmm. I don't want to become like them at a character level, you know? So you tend to read a biography either because you want to become like somebody or you don't want to become like somebody most of the time because you want to become like them even people that you may not like their character at a moral level like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk you might love the fact that they literally changed the world you know and if you're yeah. an entrepreneur or a businesswoman or whatever you might want to become like that so my point is when you read a biography you do something at an intuitive level you are somehow and a lot of this is even unconscious or it's just it's what you naturally do kind of comparing your own life to the life that you're reading. You're looking for similarities. More importantly, you're looking for, at an intuitive level, ways that you could pick up on some of the details of their life and incorporate them, kind of transpose and transmute it into your own gender, your own year, decade, your own socioeconomic, your own business, your own family life, whatever, In such a way that you may get some kind of a similar outcome to your life as they got to theirs, because you have this intuitive sense as a human being that life is the cumulative effect of a million tiny decisions that all of these tiny little habits and decisions and things somehow make up a life. And so it might be as simple as you're reading about, you know, Bill Gates and, oh, he takes a week every single year and he goes to a cabin and he reads. Well, I'm going to do that or you might read so-and-so Winston Churchill was a power napper every afternoon. He takes a 30. Okay. You might do that. Whoever the example is you intuitively copy these things. The problem is none of us read the gospels that way we read. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And we read Jesus say, come and follow me. But somehow we don't realize the most obvious statement that this is an invitation for us to come and copy the details of his day to day life. And that's like kind of my interpretation of come and follow me or another way to say that is come an apprentice under me, you know, come and be a student in my school of living. These are invitations to come and copy the details of Jesus day to day life because the Gospels are full, not just of teaching and of miracle stories the Gospels are also full of random details about Jesus' everyday life.
0: Yeah.
2: You take, you know, you're in Mark chapter 1, first chapter of the Gospel, and you read very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up early and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Okay, why is that there?
0: And you read that as narrative, just descriptive, rather than maybe prescriptive. Exactly.
2: Because you have to ask the question, why is that there? That's not a teaching. That doesn't tell me any ethics. That doesn't tell me anything about the ethics of money, sex, or power. There's no theology in that, per se. You know what I mean? mean, There's some, but there's no, like, I'm not learning that Jesus is the Messiah or the Son of God, or this is just a story about how Jesus started his morning after an exhausting Sunday. What does that teach me? If I was reading the biography of someone, I'd say, oh, wow, that's fascinating that after a super busy day of ministry, his philosophy wasn't, let me sleep in now, go out to brunch and watch Netflix. It was, I actually need, I've been with people. I need to disappear into yeah. the solitude. I need to pray. I need to be alone with God. That's more important than anything else. Yeah. And he comes out of that story with a phenomenal clarity. He gets this incredible opportunity and he says no to it and says, I must go preach the gospel in other towns. To he has this sense of like, nope, that's not what I'm to do today. This is what I'm to do today. I think you're meant to connect the dots between he was just alone with God in prayer. And now he knows what to say no to and what to say yes to. So there's a million things like that in the gospels where you're like, wow, sometimes Jesus makes it blatant. Like when he washes the disciples' feet and then yeah. he's like, this I have done to show you. <laughs> right. Like, it doesn't get any clear. Like Christians take that too seriously. And then they literally go wash feet in a world yeah. that doesn't have sandals anymore and yeah. dirt roads. I'm like, I think you're, you're kind of missing the. You have the right heart, but you're missing yeah. the point, you know. But he's saying, follow my example. Most of the time, though, he doesn't actually come out in an explicit way, say, follow my example. Yeah. Assume. That's what it means to follow Jesus.
1: Right. Yeah. I wrote this down from your book where you said to take, that like following Jesus is literally taking his life as a template for your own. And I think that we, on one hand, and I'm just generalizing the church right now, which is... You know, safe right no, it's not, but just to generalize for a moment, I think that the tendency is to take that and think of it aspirationally like or on like a more abstract level, okay, right, so use Jesus' life as a template, so I'm gonna love people and serve people, and I'm gonna you know pray and but very kind of vague, ethereal, but what's so challenging but yet so simple about the work that you do, um, John Mark, in your book is saying like, no, no, like what you just said, like, what if we actually copied some of these things or all, you know, and didn't hurt. I mean, hurry is, it's so true. And it's infuriating that like, no, I mean, hurry really is anti the fruit of the spirit and that they don't coexist. And that is so evident and obvious, but it's also kind of disheartening to think about cuz you're like man but hurry is everywhere in my day everywhere and so it really is both deeply challenging and convicting but i think it also the down in the deep of me i feel the freedom that that can bring that like wait wait but if i want to be like jesus then i need to trust and embrace the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm.
2: You do have to hold intention, come follow me with Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> That's a great point. But that has to be held in tension, or not even tension, but in paradox in both and with Jesus died on my behalf and his, something about his death that is not accomplished by my death, much less my death to self to like love my kids when they wake up in the middle of the night with a dream, bad dream or whatever, you yeah. know? And so I think you have to hold the compassion of God and justification by grace through faith in tension with example. You have to hold the the call to follow Jesus' example and become like him in tension with the fact that Jesus shows us a God who is overwhelmingly compassionate and who literally will take our sin upon him and you can't think about discipleship or spiritual formation or the way of jesus through a a merit-based legal atonement lens that will just take you in a horrible direction you know what i mean yeah, yeah. The, the practices is not like to make yourself right with god they're to be with god and to become the person you ache to be i mean what do we ache for in life three basic i mean i define following jesus as a life built around three simple goals be with jesus become like jesus and do what he did or do what he would do if he were you. Three, sir, what do we ache for as human beings? We ache for relationship, intimacy, loving acceptance with another human being, to be naked and unashamed, ultimately with God and then mm-hmm.
0: with other people, mm-hmm. right? That's what we ache for. Yeah.
2: Sexuality, which has been so perverted by our culture, is just a deep desire for communion and creativity, yeah. to be one with another soul, to be loved as we are, to be accepted, to lose ourselves and self giving agape love, you know? Secondly, we ache to become somebody who is good. We ache for goodness, even if we don't use that language or we skew it or rebel against it. Think about obituaries, think about, you know, a funeral. You've never been to a funeral where somebody stood up and said, you know what was great about Sally is she just leaned in and made millions of dollars. Right, (laughs) she was a good person. great about John is he was just true to himself and he liked porn and so he pursued porn and that's just great for him. You know what was great about you know, Sam, is he, you know, was more successful at this industry than it? Nobody says that. Yeah. Nobody cares when you die. Mm-hmm. What matters is the person that you became and the relationships that you cultivated, your relational yeah. soul. And what we do matters. That's not to say that, like, our work and our life and our, I want to make a contribution to the world. Yeah. The discipleship to Jesus is tapping into these innate, deep human desires to, I want, love and intimacy and relationship. I want to become a good person and I want to to do good in the world. I want to make a contribution, whatever, it doesn't have to be famous, it doesn't have to be celebrity, it doesn't be glamorous, but I want to leave the world better than I found These are deep human desires, not just Christians have these desires, humans have these desires. Discipleship to Jesus is where you aim those desires into specific goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he would do if he were you. And so it's not about earning God's love. You have God's love. It's about coming into God's presence. It's about becoming a person of goodness. It's about making the contribution that God's called you to make in the world. And this is where, you know, Paul's theology of identity is so important. You know, the wedding day analogy is great. On the day I got married, I got married really young. We were 19 and 21 years old.
0: Oh, they were young too. (laughs) Couldn't rent a car.
2: They wanted me to be 21. So I got married the first Saturday after my 21st birthday. Oh, that's beautiful. beautiful. No, <laughs> it was not. It tells you all you need to know about my psychosis. Look <laughs> <laughs> at that day. I'm barely 20 years old. I still have acne. Like, what did I know about being a husband? Listen. But at that point, I am husband to T. I am in a covenant relationship. And I have spent the last, almost this coming summer, probably 20 years, 20 years of my life trying to learn how to become who I already am. And I think that's what discipleship to Jesus is. We're in Christ. We're loved by God. Discipleship is how we learn to become who we already are so that we can gear up to become the people that God needs us to become in the age to come where we co-rule with Christ with love and wisdom.
1: Amen. Amen. Goodness. Now to take that such good framework and that's all so helpful And I think the big challenge of a study like this is what you just offered us, which is, okay, what is the goal? Because the goal, you know, our mission as an organization at She Reads Truth is women in the Word of God every day. That's our organization's mission and goal. But the true goal of that is to know God, mm-hmm. and there is an end that is beyond Bible reading. The goal is not Bible reading. That is the means to the
0: end. Right. Yeah. And, and so much of spiritual disciplines, none of those are the goals. The great prayer life is not the
1: goal.
2: Right. Absolutely. Sabbath, yeah. silence, talk. Yeah, I mean, the ministry you lead that's so beautiful is a spiritual discipline. So yes. Your whole yes. ministry is about one of the core spiritual disciplines, and all of the spiritual disciplines are a means to an end, which is why— you know, religious people can go weird if they let pride creep in, because success is not. I read my Bible 365 days a year. Success no, is not right. I Sabbath every Friday night Saturday. Success is not I spend an hour in silent prayer every morning. Success is I am becoming more loving and joyful and peaceful and hopeful. I'm becoming more like Jesus. So, Bible reading is not a virtue. Solitude yeah. and silence are not a virtue. Sabbath is not a virtue. Community love is a virtue. So yes. these are all means to an end, and we can talk about how that works. These are means of grace, as Calvinists call spiritual discipline. Like they're what open us up to the grace, to the empowering of God's Spirit to transform us into people of love.
0: Hey friends, Rachel here. I want to take a minute to tell you about apartment life. Did you know that 95% of people living in apartments aren't connected to a local church? Apartment life shows God's love to apartment residents in real tangible ways, opening the door to connect them to the local church and ultimately to share the gospel with people who might never hear it from someone else. We just aren't meant to stay isolated and apartment life does so much to bring people together. Apartment life pairs hosts with apartment residents to host events, build community, and care for fellow residents in times of need. Even virtual events can make a huge difference to help people feel connected. Those experiences can open the door to meet people right where they are with the hope of the gospel. Apartment Life has connected more than 65,000 residents with a local church over the last 20 years, and they are making more connections every day. So if you're passionate about loving your neighbors and you love to throw a good virtual party, visit apartmentlife.org slash truth to find out how you can become a host. We want to take a minute to tell you about one of our podcast sponsors, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions
1: and get lost in creativity. As a member, you'll get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes with hands-on projects and feedback from a community of creatives
0: worldwide. So whether you're looking to explore something new or to deepen your understanding of a current skill set, Skillshare offers creative classes designed for real life and all the circumstances that come with it.
1: Break up your routine with spontaneous acts of creativity. You'll be surprised what interests you and what you're capable of skillshare offers classes on everything from how to find your style to how to make the perfect grilled cheese i am personally
0: looking forward to emily henderson's class style your space creative tips and techniques for
1: interior design explore your creativity at skillshare.com slash she reads truth and the first 1000 people to use our link will get a free trial of skillshare's premium membership again that's skillshare.com slash she reads truth back to the show So we chose as our key, we always have a key verse for our reading plan, whether it's a book of the Bible um, that we're reading through or a topic like this. And so our key verse for this plan is actually from 1 Timothy 4, but I would love to kind of read it in a little bit of context. John Mark, would you mind reading it for us? I'm looking at 1 Timothy 4, um, specifically 6 through 10.
2: Yeah, 100%. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales, rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. I love comparing translations. It's so interesting to me. So in our book, we have the CSB And that verse 10, I think where you said that is why um, it says, for this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God. And that like, I feel like we could, if we took ourselves by the hand and said like, okay, do you put your hope in accomplishing this checklist of spiritual disciplines? Well, no, I don't put my hope there. Do you put your hope in the living God? Yes, I do. (laughs) But like, how to get, it's getting from that general agreement that we want to be like Jesus to the practice of how to do that, but in making that, in crossing that bridge, how to not preemptively trip ourselves by forgetting that it's a practice. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take, you know, getting up out of bed, feet on the floor, following Jesus day after day. After day after day.
0: I loved watching you read that, John Mark, because you couldn't help but preach it as you read it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's up muscle memory. I am a preacher. That's good. <laughs> I love
0: That's it. Good. But that rather train yourself in godliness, I think that. I mean, we've been working on this reading plan for months and months and months, and that part of that passage has just mm-hmm. echoed in my ears and been such an encouragement and challenge to me. What does it mean to train myself in godliness? And then as we go into you know, the topics, the spiritual disciplines for this week, we look at study, we look at fellowship, we look at prayer. I was especially interested in looking at the idea of fellowship as a spiritual discipline, specifically fellowship with other believers and even more specifically, when gathering with other believers, um, practicing spiritual disciplines together, I mean we're still all in some version of lockdown quarantine or carefulness right now, so yeah. like the fellowship of believers
2: yeah. is
0: something that twenty twenty made very challenging, um but also I think in some ways kind of handicapped us or excused us in ways that maybe shouldn't have, even you know as churches started regathering you know, folks sort of enjoyed their seat on the sofa to do the live stream or something like that. Um, Talk to us about fellowship as a spiritual discipline.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, we become people of love by loving (laughs) and by failing. Yeah. You know, it's why the two greatest spiritual disciplines for many people are things that people don't even think of as spiritual disciplines. It's marriage and parenting.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah.
2: That has more potential to shape you into a person of love. It won't if you let it, but, you know, you can go the opposite direction. But, yeah, I mean, I think we could talk about what spiritual disciplines are, but the role that fellowship plays is absolutely key. We become like Jesus in relationship. When Jesus said, follow me, that was to a group of people. It was always plural. There's no, the word disciples never used singular. It's all disciples, you know. You read almost no stories about Jesus one-on-one with people. And they're the exception of the rule when you do it's discipleship to Jesus is something that we do together. And, you know, we are relational creatures, you know, evolutionary psychologists call us social animals, whatever, you know, I reject the categorization of humans as animals, but we are, we are social, we are built, we are relational souls. And that's why, you know, for introverts like myself and for individualists like Americans, It's easy to be like, I'm just going to become like Jesus by following She Reads Truth, and I'll do my own thing, and I got the app, and I'll do my thing, and I'm fine. And, you know, hey, that's not a bad thing. But we will never become like Jesus. We'll never become who we ache to become without not just other people, but specifically with fellowship, with community, with in-depth, deep. The word, you know, that's translated fellowship, the New Testament is also translated partnership is actually the same word in the new Testament for communion. And in Paul's mind, it is specifically, it's not just relationships in a general sense, it's specifically this sense of partnership and deep bond that we have with other followers of Jesus as we're about the work of the community. There's a categorically different kind of relationship that we have with other believers.
0: We were studying Ephesians last fall and I remember having a real frustrating <laughs> conviction because I too am an <laughs> introvert and I hated realizing this, but um, I'm so at peace when I'm alone and I crave it. I crave being alone because you know who I get along with best? Myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I rarely disagree. Like I always want to watch the same thing, eat the same thing, whatever. Like, I just You're like, loving. I love my own company.
2: It's I'm such a delight. Joyful, relaxed person <laughs> when I'm alone.
0: It's, it's like right. the fruit of the spirit is just in full force. Oh, yeah. But then I <laughs> start interacting. like, But then, like, I don't know, like my kids, you know, come into the picture or my husband or whatever. And all of a sudden, like, I go like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm an introvert. You just have to, like, understand about me that I'll be happiest alone. And I'm, then I'm going to need
1: some space. And
0: then I realized, <laughs> like, oh, that's actually sin in my life that chooses to not. Maybe I don't want to die to myself. And maybe I don't want to, you know, put everyone ahead of me.
2: Do you um, follow at all the work of Ronald Rollheiser? Do you know about his little book, Domestic Monastery?
0: No, but we're taking
1: notes on all of your recommendations. <laughs> okay,
2: so last Christmas when it came out, I think I bought 10 copies for every single...
1: Oh, so high recommend. Okay.
2: Oh my gosh. It's You can read it in 30 minutes. It's like a tiny little book because it's written to basically exhausted parents. So he was brilliant. He oh, made it I accept really, really that. short. You know, it's more of a pamphlet than a book. Nice. Uh, Rollheiser is a Catholic scholar. He's one of my absolute favorite writers, spiritual writers. He's just his grasp of the inner life of the soul with Jesus is just profound. Anyway, has this little book called Domestic Monastery. It's beautiful. And the oversimplification of the book, his basic case is that marriage and family, if you let them, if you practice them as a spiritual discipline, have the potential to have the same level of transformative effect on you that living in a monastery as a monk and spending eight hours in prayer would. Because again, spiritual disciplines are a means to an end, right? So if you're a monk and you spend hours every day in prayer and scripture and Lectio Divina, the goal isn't to spend hours a day in scripture. The goal is to become loving. It's union with God and transformation, right?
0: John Mark, is there an equivalent to that for our single friends? Like when they're hearing that going like, okay, married and kids, I don't have either of those things. Like, and I don't really want to go to a a monastery. Yeah. Like, is there an equivalent? There is no equivalent to marriage and kids in a a number of ways, but what is it?
2: Well, I gotta be careful what I say here because often single people can feel left out by people like myself. And I don't want to do that. On one hand, It would be lying to say that any other relationship is like marriage and parenting.
0: Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah.
2: Relationships like that, specifically that will call out your flesh like that, you know, and will expose kind of your shadow side. Um, But you can get relationships of familial love, safety, security. You just have to basically. Form families, you know, which yeah. single people can do. Jesus was single. Paul was single. The early church yeah. was a widespread movement of single people. You have to actually, like, put yourself in family. You probably need to live with a couple of other people, get some roommates. Yeah. You need to, like, start doing some intentional life together around some spiritual disciplines. You need to probably have confession of sin where you're calling each other. You need to be in a spot where the real you comes out. And in friendship, we can kind of sort of curate that, especially yeah. in based friendship, being like, I'm going to see you every Thursday night, we're going to go out to dinner and see a movie. And that's like great. But your real true self, when you're, you know, exhausted and you didn't sleep good and got up at 6 a.m., that self isn't coming out, you know. Right, right. So- and you need that self to come out because that's, and to let it be ugly and nasty and to receive compassion and love and have to repent and forgive. That's how we grow. That's how we train. and for God Yeah.
1: To. yeah.
2: I'm not saying that single people can't become extraordinary people of love. And I'm definitely not saying that married and people and families will inevitably become people of love. Yeah, absolutely. I'm saying that, <laughs> you know, often married people feel jealous of single people because for a single Women I'm listening to this, you can spend an hour every single morning reading scripture and prayer in solitude by yourself. Mm-hmm. That's pretty doable for most of you. For a, a young mom or dad who's got a three-year-old or a one, that's really hard to do. And yeah. so, often, you know, people with kids feel like I can't be a serious Christian. Talk about spiritual disciplines. I can barely just get through my week. Now, yeah. some of that is excuses. Some of that is addiction to technology. Some of that is you're over busy, blah, 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 blah. But the point is, often they feel like, therefore, I can't become a person of love like a single person can, who can go to church multiple nights a week and have in-depth one-on-one conversations about God with my friends. There's been an hour in the day in prayer and have a Sabbath. And I can't do that. I'm just trying to get Johnny to soccer, you know? Right. Yeah.
0: It was interesting how like those early months, especially of lockdown last spring, I think gave us a fresh understanding of people who are not like us. Like, cause I think we were all going, this is hardest for me. You know, I'm at home with kids and I just need like a moment to be alone. And our single friends yeah. are going like, yeah, like you have a crew, <laughs> you know, like, and so it was really interesting for us to begin to understand each other really more clearly. I appreciated all of what you just said, John Mark, especially even pointing out like Jesus was single, you know, Paul was single. like, there's so much of that early church, they weren't being, you know, trained in godliness in the context of marriage and family. That is not a requirement for that.
1: Well, the familial context was the church. It was the church. I mean, for a lot of them, right? Yeah. And so and in the fellowship day, and that's our day three reading, we get some of that section from Acts 2 where, you know, they held everything in common, they devoted themselves Um, to teaching, to fellowship, verse 45, sold their possessions of property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. I mean, that is describing, you know, the highlights of some really deep relationship in which there had to have been conflict and confession of sin
2: there was, and this is where, and I did this for many years, Christians need to be really careful. You have to read all of Acts, not just chapter two. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, because that is when the church was still in the honeymoon stage. Yeah. So you have to read that same church in Acts chapter six, when there's racism and they're fighting over the Hebraic Jews and cultural differences and money. Yep. And then you have to read the same church in Acts chapter 15, where they're, angry that Gentiles are coming in and they're arguing and they can't agree and they're not sure what God wants them to do. So that's all the early church in Jerusalem. So if all you read is Acts chapter two, you're like, they were so amazing. We suck. I'm like, no, <laughs> just, just keep reading. They were in yeah. a honeymoon stage and they were Give amazing, a but that's a honeymoon stage. They had all sorts of nasty stuff that they had to deal with. They had sin still in their bodies, you know, just keep yeah. reading. Maybe you'll get to Corinthians and then that'll just make you feel way better about your church. <laughs> yes. And the point there is that community is incredibly important, that most of our church experience and Christian community experience doesn't come anywhere even close to Acts chapter two. And it's also hard and messy and there's no utopian version of it. Our yeah. sin comes out no matter who we are.
1: Yeah. I want to go back to something you said earlier when we were talking about spiritual disciplines. And you said that you would make us a distinction between the way of Jesus and spiritual disciplines. And so I want to hear more about that. But related to that, one of our reading days this week is on the topic of prayer. And prayer is one of those spiritual disciplines that should, I mean, pray without ceasing, right? So I mean, it should be part of of all of the other things, it should be part of the fabric of our just existence as, Part of our fellowship, as part Christians. of our study. Right. Yeah. You can't divorce prayer from any of these other things. And so I'm interested in hearing about kind of like where does the spiritual discipline, like what is that role in the way of Jesus um, or how are those connected and how are they different? And then taking something like prayer— and how Jesus practices prayer and how he teaches. He both models and just outright says, pray like this. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, or, and when you pray. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: Not if, when. Yeah. Okay. So I would distinguish a little bit between way of Jesus and spiritual disciplines or practices. So the way of Jesus is language from the Gospels, in particular from the Gospel of Mark, which is the oldest gospel, the first gospel. And you know, in Greek the word is Hadas. And it's a word that means way or road or path. And depending on what translation of the Bible you have, it'll show up as one of those or all three of those. But it came to me, and you see this a lot in the book of Proverbs, where there's a lot of talk about two ways, the way of the wise, the way Yeah, cool the yeah, yeah. contrast, the Hebrew version of this word is used all through Proverbs. And it came, this road path became a word picture for just like, there are kind of two different paths, how we would use the word path, or, you know, there are two different kind of ways of being, there are two different paths, two different kind of roads you can go down. So it's still kind of a word picture in our culture today. And Mark in particular uses this word, hadas, or way or road or path, not only as a word picture for kind of the way, the road, the path, the life, the lifestyle of Jesus, but also as a literary metaphor. So Mark's kind of a literary genius. And so he'll do a lot of stuff where he'll say, like, Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. And he's he's both traveling south. And he's saying that Jesus' lifestyle is one of voluntary suffering for love.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah.
2: Using it in like a double entendre. So to be on the way to Jerusalem is not just to travel south on the freeway. (laughs) It's to be on a lifestyle where you are choosing of your own will to suffer for the good and the love of others, right? So this is language, the way of Jesus, for just Jesus' vision of how to be human, the path to travel. I think the best kind of summary of the way of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. These kind of 14 core teachings of Jesus that have been put together, I think, in a flow of thought. This is, you know, the kind of person who is free of contempt in their heart, doesn't have that kind of anger, who is faithful to their commitments, who is free of anxiety, who does the right thing for the right reasons and not to show off other people, who is not under the control of money, who doesn't judge or condemn other people, but who knows, who's not passive aggressive, but knows how to ask when they want something, who is holy before God you know, who loves their enemy and doesn't resort to violence, but rather prays for and blesses those that persecute them. That's the way of Jesus. That's the kind of person, the kind of life that we want to live. Now, inside the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus, I'll often say is it's not like when we think about the Christian faith, a lot of Western Christians think about it as like a set of ideas that you believe, or what we yeah. call kind of Bible and theology, or maybe. They take it a step further and they think about it as an ethical system of like do's and don'ts and good and evil and what's good and what's bad. Um, You know, so they think about it often through theology and ethics, but they don't realize that there's a whole third category and that the way of Jesus is exactly what it sounds like. It's a way of life. It's a way of being. It's not just stuff to believe and stuff to do and not to do. It's a lifestyle. And this is kind of basic math, like, you know, your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. So there's a saying in the business world that I use a lot in kind of pastoral work. The saying is your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting Okay, yeah. <laughs> like, Let's say you run a widget factory and you're not you know, making the profit you want to make or you're only making 10,000 of your little robots and you want to make 20 or whatever. A consultant would come in and say, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you are getting, right? So you want to get different results. You want to make more money or, or produce more widgets. You need to change your system. So if you apply that thinking to kind of discipleship to Jesus, if the results that you are getting are, I feel far from God. I'm always hurried. I'm exhausted all the time. When I sit down to read my Bible, I'm distracted. I don't understand my Bible. I don't really like reading my Bible. I don't really want to be at church. If those are the results that you are getting, then the odds are that something about the system of your life is perfectly designed to yield that. And this if you is go good. Back yeah. Get, all right. Well, that's interesting. I don't love reading my Bible, but I watch Netflix nine hours a week. Hmm, right. That's interesting. I'm not really attracted to my spouse and really want to give myself to them like I used to, but that's interesting. I watch a lot of lustful material on TV. I really don't want to give, and I'm constantly wishing I had more. That's interesting. I don't tithe at all. Instead, I'm going into debt over this, that, or the other. Like if you can just trace things back to the system of your day-to-day life, maybe the root problem isn't if you just try to deal with stuff at a behavior level, like a moral level, And you never deal with the root stuff in your heart and in your schedule, you will never experience the transformation that God wants for you. So you have to go down to the heart stuff where Christians are often like that's at least familiar territory. Like what what are the idols in my heart, the attachments in my heart that I need to root out. But then you forget that what we love is the byproduct of our habits. Yeah. You know, this is where spirituality and psychology all agree that the things we do do something to us and habits shape our heart, not through our prefrontal cortex, but through our limbic system. They get into us and they shape what we love and what we hate, what we desire and what we don't desire. So the, the easiest example for this is like coffee. Like most people, not all, but most people love coffee. Coffee is an acquired taste. Most people start thinking coffee is gross. I love coffee how did I become the kind of person whose heart is bent in the direction of love for coffee? Well, by drinking coffee. One of my first jobs in <laughs> school was at a coffee shop. I didn't even like coffee. It was just a job I could get. And so I started drinking. It wasn't even real coffee. It was like mochas with a tiny bit of coffee snuck into basically dairy, sugar and chocolate and whipped mm-hmm. cream. You know?
1: Yum.
0: I think my first year of coffee drinking was peppermint mochas.
2: Yeah. That year was your out. gateway drink. So we're recording this at Christmas time and I haven't had a peppermint mocha in years. I think I know what I'm doing this afternoon. I think Mm -hmm. we need to go get some. Listen,
1: (laughs) have them take like the pumps of mocha and peppermint down significantly or you're going to.
0: Your body will go into shock.
1: And your taste buds. (laughs) My point is.
0: Back to spiritual disciplines and prayer. mm -hmm. Yes.
2: Drinking the mocha, then became drinking a vanilla latte, then became drinking a latte. Then became drinking a Cortada, then became drinking black coffee. Now, like every morning, I'm diehard. Like, I care about my coffee. Where is it? How fresh is it? I drink it black only. Like, I love coffee.
0: Travel with your personal coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
2: So, why do I drink coffee? I don't drink it because of a book I read about it. I drink it because I love it. Most things that we do in life, we do because we want to. We're desire driven creatures. We follow our loves. We are what we love and who we love.
0: Mm -hmm. That's
2: who we become. And so discipleship, Jamie K. Smith's work here is so important, is really one way to think about discipleship is how we curate what we love. And we don't realize that we actually have a say, a choice in whether or not we indulge certain desires in our heart or whether or not we push them in another direction because we know they will not lead to life but to death. And this is where our generation has completely lost sight of this. We do not have to be slaves to our desire. We can curate our, we can't control, but we can curate our desires. And what people don't realize is habits and your thought life are how you curate what you love. So if your thought life is full of secular messaging, Netflix, entertainment, progressive, secular, or conservative, secular, political newsfeed, ideology from the right or the left, whatever your socioeconomic background is, and if your habits are worldly habits full of materialism, entertainment, overindulgence, sexuality, whatever, that is shaping you. You are being discipled by the culture long before you're being discipled by Jesus, Mm -hmm. and you are becoming like the world long before you're becoming like the kingdom of God, So spiritual disciplines are all they are. Habits is the secular word. I don't even think spiritual disciplines is a good language. It's not biblical language. It's not bad per se, but whether you call them habits or spiritual disciplines, we call them practices. Um, Ruth Haley Barton calls them sacred rhythms. Her work on this is just brilliant. Whatever you call them, these are just acts, they're habits, they're ways of being that are based on the life and the teachings of Jesus himself that curate our love, that index our heart toward union with God and transformation into people of love as defined by Jesus, not by this culture. And they're as simple as you read Mark one and you realize, oh, very early in the morning, Jesus got up and he went to a solitary place and he prayed. So that's a spiritual discipline, getting up early in the morning, getting somewhere where you can be alone and praying. That's a spiritual discipline. And that's actually, I think, one of the two most core spiritual disciplines in the life of Jesus is basically quiet, solitary prayer and life in community. You know, yeah. And scripture, I think, is in both of those. It's embedded into both of those places.
1: The thing that is so tricky about spiritual disciplines to me, and specifically about us putting together a reading plan about them, is there's not one way to do this or categorize it or whatever, because it's like you said, John Mark, that what we're trying to quantify and put down on paper is just a way of living. It was Jesus' way. It is Jesus' way of living and being. And it's the way that he moved about the earth and what he did with his time.
2: Relationships require discipline. So I kind of think of morning prayer the same way I think of date night or, you know, right. yeah. every night after dinner, my wife and I try to have a 20-minute connect point. And it's a discipline. And there are times when I want to do it and times when I don't because I'm just exhausted from that day or we're both in a bad mood or we had up whatever, but that's a discipline that's there to create space, to be together.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then, that- you, you know, your work around scripture is so key because if prayer is awareness of and connection to God, how you're defining it, which I agree with, then you will only want to be around God. If you love God, if you yeah. have come to find him beautiful and compelling yeah. and compassionate and and you're just drawn like somebody who's cold is drawn to heat. You're just drawn, your soul is drawn to beauty and the radiance of the inner life of the Trinity that is God. And that happens for the most part through reading scripture. Yeah. As, you, as you read who God is through the eyes of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, you just begin to just have this incredible. Because we all have ideas about God that are completely wrong. All of us, I'm yeah. do, you know?
0: Yeah.
2: And scripture, in particular, Jesus, shows us who God is and how to think about God. And we fall in love with God, and then we want to be with God. And then as we are with God, then we're transformed to become like God, you know? But to what you said, you know, um, the spiritual disciplines are tricky. They're not commanded. Like, Jesus never tells you to read your Bible in the morning. Mm-mm. I think every Christian should wake up in the morning and read their Bible. I've been reading the Bible in a year since I was like eight years old. I'm a fan, but Jesus doesn't <laughs> tell me to do it. He doesn't, command right. me. he doesn't command me to live in community. He doesn't command me to you know, confess sin. He doesn't command me to fast. He doesn't command me to tithe. He just does all of these things. And then he says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. You know, yeah. so that's different. And the nice thing is it calls for intelligence and creativity and ownership. Yeah. Okay. You know, like the what would Jesus do bracelet from back in the day. We're both probably we're all of the age where we know what that is. <laughs> Younger listeners are like, what is that? Wasn't a bad question. I have no beef with it. But a better question than what would Jesus do is what would Jesus do if he were me. Okay. Jesus wasn't female.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: And so how would Jesus be a woman? He wasn't a mother. How would he be a mother? He wasn't, you know, a single woman. He wasn't a Nashvilleite. He wasn't a Portlander. He wasn't you know there's so many different things you know how would jesus change diapers how would jesus do a spreadsheet how would jesus you know pastor a church i don't know you could yeah. you know what i mean and so you have to extrapolate out from the life of jesus what does this look like through my life my personality my stage of life you know my call in life the world i live in my socioeconomic reality And that's why I think Jesus doesn't codify out a rule of life and say, these are the 10 things you do every day. These are the 10 things you do every week. People have done that, and it's really helpful, but it's only helpful in when your life is analogous to theirs and since most of us are not a first century male Jewish rabbi who's an itinerant miracle worker i'm yeah, not
0: i'm not either
2: I'm not. <laughs> you know
0: true confessions
2: you have to get creative and that's the beauty of the gospels because you just get to find yourself in these stories find yourself in the narrative and you get to explore okay so jesus would start his day in prayer that's a little hard i've a 2 year old that's a little hard i've a roommate that's a little hard i have to be at work at 6 a.m. so you have to get creative how do i figure this out how do i work this in And there's no legalism. There's no earning God's love. It's just exploring what does it look like for me to copy the details of Jesus' life.
1: Yeah, And all of these things that we're trying to put on paper and like, okay, for the purposes of just taking cues from Scripture and putting a reading plan together so we can dig in and learn together, all of these things that we've labeled as disciplines and practices, they're all also connected. And so it's difficult. You know, we created this knowing We're going to do the best we can in a way that we think makes sense to us. But, you know, it's ultimately, it is about relationship. It is about practicing our faith in a person named Jesus. (laughs) So here's where I'd like for us to kind of land. I know that there's so much head nodding happening with this. Yeah. You know, everything that you're saying, John Mark, that, yes, like, that's what I want. But I would love to leave our listeners with just a... Um, aside from opening their Bibles every day, which is what we do, that's what we invite them to do specifically. It's kind how, of our thing. Yeah. How to kind of start to tap into this way of living that you are describing, the way of Jesus and taking it from this aspirational, yeah. good intentions place of the new year. <laughs> what can this look like for me today and tomorrow and the next day? A moment ago, you said something about being drawn to beauty. And I feel like that is kind of where, where I find success in any kind of effort like this in my life, or like I'm going to put effort toward you know, toward reading my Bible or Sabbath or whatever, it's something about the practice is pricking that like, you know, um, acknowledgement, that recognition of Jesus is beautiful and wanting to lean into that. And so, but even that I'm like, well, but what is that? What do we do? Like, we're all just going, what do we do?
2: What do, we do? Well, the first thing I would say is stop doing stuff, not start doing stuff. Yeah, that's fair. Start with subtraction, not addition. You know, it's the new year, like I said, start every year with D resolutions. Theologically, you know, Genesis 1, this is weird for Westerners, but in biblical theology and in Jewish culture, the day starts at sundown. Like in Western culture, technically the day starts at midnight, 12.01, but we think of the day starting as when you wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. Jewish culture, the day starts at night. And so Genesis 1 there was evening and there was morning on the first day. And then it's interesting the week starts the week starts with Sabbath. And Eugene Peterson had this great like little aside at one point where he's writing about how in biblical theology the day starts with sleep and the week starts with Sabbath and it's like God was teaching justification by grace through faith from page 1 of the Bible.
1: Yeah, you don't earn the rest. The rest is given.
2: Because so many people are exhausted and over busy, and talk about the spiritual disciplines is often. Well, some people are probably feeling anxiety in their chest right now because they're just thinking, "I'm already over busy and exhausted and stressed out, and now you're asking me to do more." Right. Now you're mm-hmm. asking me to do an hour of prayer in the morning, or read through this scripture thing, or go to church more, or have community. I'm already exhausted. Yeah. And so, if following Jesus is just one more list of to dos on top of your already over busy life. First off, it won't work. Secondly, you won't even like it. You won't even enjoy Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing you need to do is rest and cut a bunch of stuff out of your life. We do a, like a welcome to the church thing a couple of times of the year for people that are new to our church. I used to, we've been here for a while, I used to start with this big like vision talk about how we want to see the kingdom of God come to Portland. And it was super aspirational. And completely ineffective and mostly just made people feel exhausted. You know, (laughs) Yeah. now I basically say, hey, you're going to hear us talk about a lot of things that we do as a church. We're going to ask you to do some things. We're going to ask you to be in a community. We're going to ask you to come on Sundays. We're going to ask you to do some things. But um, we're actually not asking you to do more. We're asking you to do less. If you want to be a part of our church, we're asking that you would slow down your life to the pace of Jesus. You would cut out a bunch of extra stuff from your life and that you would really build in some habits of rest and renewal and prayer with God and other people to anchor your life. And if that doesn't sound appealing to you, then we're probably not the right church for you to be a part of, you know, because we're not here to just add more stuff on top of your already over life. It's an easy yoke, and we want to help you shoulder. Life is heavy. There's a yoke, there's a weight to life that you have to shoulder. There's no version of life Without suffering, there's no like if I nail the spiritual disciplines, I'll never be anxious or tired or grouchy. That world does not exist. There's a weight, a load, and a bearing suffering to life, bearing the suffering of our own sin as we carry it in our own body that is never fully eradicated this side of resurrection. There's no way around that. Don't let this sound like utopian self help project self-spirituality. Life is hard. Following Jesus is not a cure-all for all sadness, right? It will actually bring new sadness into your life in some ways. It'll just mix it with deep joy like you never could believe. But all that to say, more and more, I'm telling people, start with rest. Why don't you just turn off your TV tonight and go to bed early and sleep in with no alarm and take a Sabbath, take a whole day, turn off your phone, shut things away and just be, rest, do what's life-giving for your soul. You don't even have to do a ton of spiritual stuff. Like that's the end goal, but just attend to your body. Sleep, you know, take a long shower if you want, take a walk outside if you want, whatever. You find life-giving, you want to knit, you want to have coffee with your girlfriend, you want to read a book with your little girl, like whatever is life-giving for you. Just attend to your body, attend to your soul. And then from a place of deeper rest and sleep and Sabbath, begin to just start every day and quiet with God. The hardest thing for me to teach my kids, because it's hard to teach your kids spiritual disciplines, right? Without forcing them to do things. The hardest thing about yeah. teaching kids how to read the Bible is they're like, okay, cool. I'll read my Bible. They open it up. Here's the text of the day. Okay, cool. I'll read my Bible on. I'm like, no, 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 no. The whole point is to connect with God. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 My kids. Like in a basically. How do you slow down? How do you meditate on the text? How do you meet God in prayer? How do you let God transform you in this moment? The point is not just to read through the Bible, that text that we've assigned you as a family, because we're all reading through Acts together right now, you know? And I think it's the same problem for most adults, in particular yeah. those who have phones. It's like, cool, I read my Bible today. Oh, okay, but did your soul come to peace? Yeah. Did you connect with God? Did you rest in his love? prayer for me looks increasingly like just sitting in the quiet and being loved by God and just looking yeah. at God, looking at me, you know, and I don't know when not all start there, but prayer is the most life giving thing I ever do. Cause it's not really something I do. It's more something that I just let be done to me under God's love. So all that to say, I think the most practical way to start is cut a bunch of stuff out of your life, get a good night's sleep, take a Sabbath, just do that to begin. And then, If all you can pull off is seven minutes every morning, great. Start your day in quiet. And if you can pull off longer than that, fantastic.
1: Just start somewhere. Yeah. And then start again the next day.
2: Yep. Tiny habits. Better to start with five minutes and keep going than start with an hour and make it two days.
0: Yeah. That's a good word. That is. All right. Well, I haven't seen a clock in a while, but I know. Oh, it's late. <laughs> we've deeply abused our time with John
2: Mark. We have. So I love your intelligence, your love for Scripture, your love for Jesus, your heart. This is just... Oh, you're kind. Just, we got to do this again. I just love oh, we it. We would
0: love that. We would love that. Well, friends, we are coming back next week with week two of our Faith and Practice Study. We're going to have our friend Annie F. Downs joining <gasps> Who's us. One
1: of uh, John Mark's interment friends. <laughs>
0: she <laughs> is great. So we'll talk with Annie about fasting and Sabbath and, oh, you know. Just, oh, lots
1: of things. Oh, lots
0: of good things. Service, meditation. It's going to be good. We're really looking forward to that. I just don't want to take any more Denmark's time, but I would love to ask one thing that we do on the She Reads Truth podcast. For an hour, we open God's Word or share the testimony of the saints with each other and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth that we find in Scripture. But at the end of the episode, we love to look up from Scripture and say, like, where in our lives are we seeing beauty, goodness, and or truth that's also pointing us to Christ? So our question for our guests at the end of every episode is that. John Mark, where are you seeing beauty, goodness, and truth in your life?
2: You know what I'm thinking about today? We're recording this, you know, before Christmas— is I'm just blown away at how hard 2020 has been and that our church is still together.
1: Amen. Oh, praise God.
2: People, and we've not been able to gather for 10 months. And our people are still together in their own way, following Jesus. Our church is held together. We still have staff, we're still giving. I've just been blown Amen. away by the, the simplest things that you take for granted.
1: Yeah, man. That's oh, that's beautiful. so that's so good to hear. Yeah. It's fun to you know, Portland's far from Nashville and it's just fun to hear that report from, you know, boots on the ground and reporting Portland. from Portland. Yeah. Holy that the Spirit church is alive, alive and well. Yeah.
2: You can't meet with anybody outside of your household at all, but somehow the church is still together.
1: Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, thank you again so much for joining us. And for sure, I feel like I just sat and learned for an hour. Me that too. was incredible. So I'm ready to you. go take
1: a nap, per John Mark's instructions.
2: <laughs> I tend to over-talk, so I'll shut up now and you go take a nap.
0: Oh, that That's awesome. I incredible. love it. Incredible. Thank you. And please come back. And like I said, we've got Annie F. Downs next week. But until next week, John Mark, what do we tell them?
2: Keep opening your buckles.